0: All right, grab your Bible with me this morning. We are in our series called What Do I Believe? And we're going to talk about that question all year long. Last year we talked about, Lord, do I trust God? This year we're talking about, What do I believe? And we're in a mini series right now talking about the Bible, the importance of the Bible. And today I want to talk about how the Bible was built, how this book got put together, how did that happen? And I want to talk about that this morning. And Kate's right. It is a little bit more of a technical message. I'm going to put my teacher hat on instead of my motivational pastor hat on. And so hopefully that'll be good. But let me start with this. How many of you have something in your house, maybe in your office, that is important to you that somebody built for you? Okay? It could be a child. Maybe they built something for you, made something for you. Uh, it could be a grandpa that made something for you or something, and that thing is special to you because someone in your life that is special to you built it for you. I have, I have several things like that. In fact, I have an entire file of things that my daughter, Allie, like, colored for me, things like that, they're all in a file. But in my office, I also have this um, up on my desk. This is a letter opener, just in case you didn't know. Um, It's a letter opener. It's not very sharp. And I would say it's probably not the best at, at opening my letters, but my son made it for me. And he put his initials there. It's TJ09. So he was like seven years old. And he and a friend made this little letter opener just for me because I guess it was kind of funny when he gave it to me because I'm like, oh, you see dad open letters a lot? yeah. So, okay, cool. I need a letter opener. So that was great. He thought of that and he made it. And so this one's kind of special to me and it sits on my desk and I do open letters with it once in a while, just because I got, you know, Hey, got to remember my son. So, um, but this is special because Tim made it for me. It's special because of who Tim is in my life. He's my son and because he made it. Now as we get started and we start talking about the word and we continue to talk about the word, here's what I want us to understand as we study this morning. This book is special because God built it for you. God put this book together for you. Every single letter, every single word, every single book, every single person that was a part of this, it's all for you. God built this book For you, because he loves you, because he wants relationship with you, and because he wants to spend eternity with you, and you can discover how eternal life happens as you read this book. God built it for you, but let's talk a little bit more specifically about what that means. How did God do that? Because the Old Testament and the New Testament went through a fairly rigorous process to get to what you and I have today. And it helps us understand God's word a little bit more when we understand the process that it went through. So first of all, let's just talk about the word Bible for a minute. The word Bible comes from the Greek word biblion, and it actually means papyrus scroll. And it means papyrus scroll because originally in the first century when we were writing the Bible and the Greeks used that word Bible and the the Greek world, which the Roman empire, kind of assimilated Greek things into it. And so Greek was a language used a lot and Roman, and then you had your kind of like your, your natural language that was your own, your own tribe or your own country. But that word biblion means papyrus scroll because the Bible in its original form was actually written on a papyrus scroll. So you would have this long piece of paper rolled up on a scroll and that would be your Bible. You didn't have it in book form like we do today or on our phone like we just scroll through Bible Gateway or Blue Letter Bible or whatever. Um, You actually had this long scroll And it even wasn't even important what order they were in. It was just important that you had them. And even it might not have been that they were all linked together, but you had several of them all rolled up together and you would unroll it and read from it. And then you would roll it back up and put it away. So God's word was written down on papyrus scrolls originally and then transcribed over time. So how did we end up with the Bible we have today? Well, last week we spent quite a bit of time talking about the first step In the production of the Bible, and that is the inspiration of God. So, we spent lots of time talking about how God inspired the Bible to come to be. That God is the author, and that He was using humanity and the writers and the authors uh, to write through them, but God was really telling them what to say and inspiring them about what to say, and also inspiring them about the stories to include, because much of the Old Testament are stories that are included. to get us a full understanding of the history of God's people. So which stories do we include? Which stories do we leave, leave, leave out? All of that is the inspiration of God. Now these writers in the Bible, all the way from the beginning to the end, they make some pretty big claims about God's word. When you look at what the writers say about God's word, they're big, bold claims. Let me give you a couple examples. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, Moses says, remember the day you stood before the Lord, your God at Horeb, when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. So here's the big, bold claim. The big, bold claim that Moses made about the the first five books in the old Testament is these were written. God had us write these down. So number one, we would revere the Lord. We would respect him. We would fear him. We would love him. We would want to be in relationship with God. And then second, because we all need to go through a training process and that starts when you're children. And that we need to have some stuff that we know is the truth, that we know is right from wrong, to, to give to our children and to write to our children and to train to our children and to teach them what is right and what is wrong. Because every culture in the world Is going to be challenged with that, and we need to have God's word to know what is truly right from wrong. As you move along in God's word, in Psalm 118, verse 30, David wrote this about God's word As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless, and he shields all who take refuge in him. You'll find actually hundreds of verses like this from David in the Psalms, all throughout it. In fact, David is one of the few writers, the longest. The longest chapter in the entire Bible is Psalm 119, and it's all about God's word. Every single letter in the Hebrew alphabet with about eight to 10 different verses, all in this kind of prose, poetry way, all talking about God's word. And it's the longest chapter in the Bible, all pointing to the fact that God's word is flawless and perfect, and we can love it, and it can change our lives. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus said this about his word. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Wow, that's a good one. Jesus said, if you want to walk in the blessing of God, obey God's word and live it out in your life. Listen to it, hear it, obey it. In Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, the author wrote, for the word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Wow. That's a pretty big claim. It says the word of God is alive and active, that it's not just words on a page. It's something that comes off the page and penetrates your life. And it goes straight to your heart, straight to your mind. And it divides your soul and spirit. And it even helps me with my attitude. Anybody need help with your attitude besides me? Right, that's that's a couple of you. Good. Okay, the rest of you, I need somebody else is going to need to take the microphone because these people all over here, they're perfect. Not one single person in this section raises their hand. All right, so you all will be the mentors this next year. We're the mentees. <laughs> But God's word can do that, right? I read a Clancy book recently. It didn't do this for me. In fact, the Clancy book scared the bejeebies out of me and scared me, and now I'm just scared, like I think everybody wants to kill me now. But God's word gives me hope and joy, right? Changes my life, changes my mind, changes my attitude, judges me, helps me know what's right from wrong. God's word helps me with, with all of that because it's alive and it's active, inside of me well these are powerful statements about a book but this book is not just claiming that it's a book it's claiming that these are the words of God Almighty so it's not like any other book it's God's word and so what we hold in our hands and what we look at on our phones and what we read on our tablets is a 3500 year old document that God built for you and for me through his inspiration. The second step of that process is called transcription. And this process is where it, it gets a little bit challenging because the process of copying the Bible in its written form, in its original form, in its perfect form because, becomes challenging and maybe where many of us get some of our questions, like how do we know if they copied exactly what it really said? I mean, how do we know that? Well, in the Old Testament, um, there were scribes. And being a scribe, someone that copied the word of God from its original form to a copy, was an extremely high calling. If you decided to become a scribe, it was as if you were deciding to become a priest. You would have been well-respected in the community. Uh, You would have been loved in the community. But because you would have spent your entire life transcribing, recopying the original word of God that would get sent out among the people all around the world. And so that calling was very high. It was a a painstaking process. It was an important process. And so the people that transcribed God's word were thought of very respectfully in the community. Now the scribes, they happened to feel very Uh, special about God's word they had a great passion a deep passion for preserving God's word in its original form and so they believed that what they were doing was very serious work they also believed that um, that they needed to copy it perfect that they could not mess it up and the teachers of the law and the priests were the ones that would hold them accountable to that if you remember to become a priest. Um, in the Jewish culture, you had to memorize the entire Old Testament. So the scribes had hundreds of people around them that would hold them accountable to whether or not they got every single word right. Because if a priest was reading from your scroll that you copied, you're a scribe, you've copied this scroll, and the priest is reading from it and he recognizes, whoa, you made a mistake here. We got a problem. We got to throw this one out. That's what they do. Throw that one out, start over. Because the word of God was so important to them and they did not want to mess it up, there was this very, very rich form of accountability. There could be no errors and any errors would be corrected so that God's word never changed in any way. Now, let me give you an example of this. Because the scribes felt so deeply about God's word, And because they also felt so strongly about the power of God's name, whenever they came to a spot in the Bible where they wrote God's name, they went through a process. So they'd get to that moment where they would write God's name and they would clean their pen, they would re-dip it, they would write God's name, they would re-clean their pen, and they would put their pen down and they would be done for the day. That's all they would do for that day is just one word God's name. And that's how precious they felt like God's name was. In fact, it became so precious that for a while they didn't even want to write God's name. They changed it from Yahweh and Elohim to the Lord Almighty because they felt God's name was so precious that for a time, we're not even gonna write it. A human hand can't even write God's name, it's so awesome. And so this is a painstaking process. So if you can think about that, you get to that day where you stop for the day, you clean your pen, you put it down, you come back the next day, you dip it in ink, you write God's name, you clean it off, and that's your word for the day, just God's name. That tells you the the reverence that they had for God's word. It's extremely high. It's higher than anything else in the entire community. So God's word was serious business because the scrolls would be sent all over the world. The scribes never knew where the scrolls would go. Maybe they would get to a synagogue, sent to a synagogue in northern Israel. Maybe it would get sent to a synagogue in northern Africa or northern Russia or whatever. It would get, just get spread out all over the world wherever the Jewish people were living and they would request Um, a scroll of the Old Testament that would get copied and then it would get sent to that place far away. And they wanted to make sure that everyone around the world, everyone that was a part of the people of God would have an opportunity to have God's word in its original form. So it was always copied very, very strictly. Now several times throughout Israel's history, the papyri were destroyed. When the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple in 586, the te- the, lots of the scrolls were destroyed. When the, when the Romans destroyed it in 8070, lots of them were destroyed. But since God's word had been copied so many times and so accurately, perfectly, and it was sent out to synagogues all over, they could easily reconstruct the Old Testament once again and put it back together. Now, someone might ask, like, how, really, how strict were they about honoring God's word? It seems kind of silly that someone would be so strict about honoring God's word. Well, let me remind you about something that we believe and that's something that we just celebrated this morning that reveals to us how strict they were about God's word. We have to remember that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they hung Jesus on a cross because they believed that he did not obey God's word. They were willing to kill somebody And Jesus wasn't the first by the way. They killed anybody that they felt like wasn't believing or obeying God's word. They were very strict about God's word. Now what they didn't understand when it comes to Jesus is that Jesus was the Messiah and they just didn't understand that. And Jesus had to die to save the world from our sin. And so we understand that that was all part of God's plan. Let me give you uh, something else that helps us understand how God was putting this word together and gives us a compelling argument for the authenticity of the Holy of, of the Old Testament, and that is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They are uh, a great archaeological find in the history of our world. And between 1947 and 1956, there was about 900 scrolls found in caves all over around the Dead Sea area in the Middle East. Now these these scrolls. They, were made, they made up about 40% of the Old Testament, and one scroll had the entire book of Isaiah on it. Um, and in all those sections of the Old Testament, that 40% and that book of Isaiah, it's exactly the same as the Bible that we have today. So for nearly 2,000 years, because the scrolls were written... Uh, early before the first century and into the first century by the people who were living at Masada. And th- the people that lived there, they painstakingly as well had scribes that were co- copying the Old Testament. Well, that Old Testament is the exact same Old Testament that you're holding in your hand right now. So over almost 2,000 years, we've had a perfect preservation of the Old Testament. That's pretty good. It's a compelling argument to the authenticity of the Old Testament. So the inspiration of God and the transcription of people that loved God's Word has allowed for the authenticity of the Old Testament to be preserved to this day. But what about the New Testament? How was the New Testament built? Well, actually, very similarly to the Old Testament, because they are built uh, fairly close together, but we can also see some differences in the New Testament, and I'd like to point those out and have us look at them this morning. The first thing I want to look at is the place that um, everybody always started it and that was with the author. So even in the Old Testament, when they began to look at a writing and discover whether it was the inspiration of God and written in the authority of God, they would always first look to the author and find out who the author was. How did the author live? Is this person a, a, a strict follower of God? Are they really following God to the best of their ability, or is this just somebody that wants to make up a story and make some money? They would find all that information out, and they would find that information out based on the author. So there was a strict and very rigorous process that an author would go through um, to even be looked at as a person that, that we would say that their, um, their writings could be inspired by God. So the first requirement um, is to look at that person's life. And if that person's life was living for the Lord, then we would, that would be the first requirement and the things that we would consider in the new Testament, most of the writings in the new Testament, the largest majority of the writings in the new Testament were written by the apostles of Jesus. And uh, the first requirement to be an apostle was you had to see Jesus with your own eyes. Okay. That's the first requirement. The second requirement was you had to be one of the 12 disciples that was chosen by Christ. So that narrows it down to how many? About 11, okay? Narrows it down to about 11. Except we have Paul, who wrote a large part of the New Testament as well who we know saw Jesus' ministry, he just didn't believe in Jesus at that time. In fact, he was Antichrist. He didn't believe in Jesus at all. He was encouraging people not to believe in Jesus. In fact, he was killing people that believed in Jesus. But he knew who Jesus was. He had seen Jesus with his own eyes. He just didn't believe in him. But then Jesus reveals himself to him physically, knocks him off his horse on his way to Damascus. So Paul sees Jesus again, resurrected. And so we kind of honorable mention Apostle Paul, right? Because of of this part of his life. So Matthew, John, Peter, and Paul write nearly 90% of the New Testament. Okay. So these are men who saw Jesus face to face, spent all of Jesus' ministry with him, and they were considered apostles. These are the four main writers of the New Testament. So their works Their works are rarely refuted because they knew Jesus, they saw him, and they spent time with him as well. So their writings are considered authentic because as authors, they are very well vetted. Okay. Now let me give you two verses that we read just this week in our writings through the gospels. We've been reading through the gospel. We read through the gospel of John. And we finished out the Gospel of John this week, and there were two verses that are important to this idea that we're talking about this morning. The first one is in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. John said this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John says, hey, I want you to know something. The reason I'm writing this letter, the reason I'm writing on this papyrus skull, the reason I'm writing my letter is because I want you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so I wrote all this information about Jesus to help you do that. And then in John chapter 21, verse 24, just the next chapter Um, John's closing out his letter. This is actually the second to last verse in his letter. And he's just trying to humbly say, hey, I'm a witness to this. And so he says in verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And so John tries to humbly say, hey, I saw all of this with my eyes. What I'm writing down and what I'm telling you, I saw with my own eyes. Now, the rest of the authors are Mark, Luke, and James, okay? They make up the next, the rest of the thing. So Mark, we all know, he's he's the guy, well, he's he's the guy with the best name in the New Testament. Let's just put it that way. Uh, But he was not an apostle. He was not a disciple. But he did see Jesus with his own eyes. He did hang out with Jesus. He did know Jesus, He did get to see Jesus, but he doesn't get the apostle part because he wasn't a disciple. He was also a very close friend of Peter and of Paul, actually traveled around with Paul in his ministry, also had a little bit of a falling out with Paul. But at the end of Paul's life, Paul asks for a couple things at the end of his life. He asks for his scrolls, his Old Testament scrolls and the New Testament scrolls. He asks for a coat because maybe he was cold and he asks for Mark. So this is a pretty prominent guy in the early church who has a great ministry. That's Mark. Luke was also someone that saw Jesus with his own eyes and was a very close friend of Paul and saw Jesus' ministry and heard about Jesus a lot from Paul as well. And then the third one is James. Now let's talk about James a little bit because James could be a little bit sketchy, right? James, like Paul, did not believe in Jesus while Jesus was ministering which is really unfortunate. But James did see Jesus with his own eyes and saw him quite frequently and quite regularly because James was Jesus' brother. But he didn't believe in Jesus. Anybody have a brother that you don't believe in? You're like, yeah, (laughs) no, right. My sister cannot do that, right? Well, for whatever reason, that's how James felt about Jesus until the Holy Spirit came and the Holy Spirit fell and he And the death and the resurrection of Christ opened James' eyes to the fact that, oh, my gosh, my brother is the Messiah. Now, you think it would have been enough that Mary and Joseph were always saying to James, James, could you be more like your brother? (laughs) Golly, like your brother's perfect. How come you're always messing up dinner? But James missed it. And we'll, we'll just give him some slack with that, right? So these three guys, Mark, Luke, and James, are not apostles, but very close to Jesus. And so the early church values all of these writings from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, Peter, Paul. Now, what would this be like today? This would be similar to you writing a biography about your older brother or someone that you roomed with for three years at college. Now, we would say about your writings, about that person, they're, they're accurate. Like, you know that person fairly well. If you lived with them for three years during college, you know that person pretty well. Or they were your brother. We're, we're fairly certain you, you are authentic in your writings. Now, here's what's interesting. The followers of Jesus believed in the authenticity of the Old Testament. They completely understood how that process worked that I just explained earlier. They loved that process. They loved God's word. And they understood the strictness that one needs to have in authenticating what is God's word and what is not God's word. And that that process is extremely important to the people of God, but to all of humanity, because we are going to say, this is the absolute truth. So that process, that understanding, that mentality, that idea is carried over in the first century as we start to look at letters that the early church leaders and apostles begin to write to the churches. As they begin to write, there's that understanding that these writings could be also inspired of God. So they begin the process of vetting them and they begin the process of discovering, okay, who's the author? The author's Peter. Okay, great. Peter hung out with Jesus a lot. And his stories, we can authenticate. John. Who's John? Okay, he was an apostle. He's a leader of the church today. We can believe him. We know he hears from God. We can believe that his, that his gospel is inspired. Uh, okay, James. Well, James, you know, he's kind of, I don't know. Well, he was Jesus' brother. Well, geez, he probably knows a lot about Jesus. So they begin to vet these guys and they be, begin to discover if they're authentic and real, look at their lives. And then they begin to look at their writings. Is there anything in this writing that contradicts the Old Testament? If there is, it's out because this is already God's word. This is already God's inspired word. So is, is what the author in the New Testament writing fulfilling the Old Testament talking about fulfilling prophecy, not going against the Old Testament. Okay, great. Then then that's step one. It, It agrees with the Old Testament. And then you would continue that vetting process. What does it say about Jesus? What does it say about the historical people in that letter? For instance, Matthew talks about Caesar Augustus in his letter. Well, don't you think it would be smart to find out if Caesar Augustus was alive while Matthew was writing that letter and discover if it's authentic or not? I mean, if he writes down Caesar Augustus was alive and had Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem and Caesar Augustus is dead, we would all say what? Ah, come on, that's a little fishy. So you would look at all the historical things that were in that book and discover, okay, every piece of history, every lake that's mentioned, every river that's mentioned, every person that's mentioned, every date that's mentioned, every governor or person in power, every, gov- every, every government official that's listed in the letter and in the book, are they all real? Are they all true? Were they all alive? Is all of that accurate? Yes, yes. we just went through another huge hurdle. So all of that's getting vetted through early church leaders as they look at these books. Now, why are they doing this? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, there are also other letters being written about Jesus, and some of them have some falsehoods in them. Some of them have some heresies in them. Some of them have some things that are not theologically correct, and we don't want those included in God's word. We don't want them included as if they were God's word. And so these things are all being worked out along the way. Now, this process that I've been talking about takes about 400 years, from the time Jesus leaves to about 397 AD. About about 350 to 400 years, there's this strict process that the New Testament begins to go through, and they are discovering whether every single claim and writing in the New Testament is authentic. So the early church leaders begin, they start making lists of what they believe are the letters that are the inspiration of God and the letters that are not the inspiration of God, okay? So throughout the churches, there were letters that were circulating on papyrus scrolls, and you'd have the entire Old Testament, but then you'd also have a letter from Paul. Or you might have a section of of Peter's writings or of John's writings about Jesus. And then you might have some writings from some other people that were just thrown in there. Other people that saw Jesus alive, other people that were trying to uh, bring erroneous things into the church and get people to obey the Old Testament law instead of living the grace of Christ. There would be those letters circulating out there. Uh, A lot of Gnosticism, which was an idea to get people to go away from Jesus. All those letters are circulating as well. And so the New Testament church leaders begin to compile um, lists to help the New Testament church authenticate and understand what was God's word and what was not. The first list that we have was written by Arrhenius in 130 AD. So only about 40 years after John has has died on the island of Patmos, who lived into his 90s. Um, And so Arrhenius writes a list, and here's what's interesting. Arrhenius writes a list in 130 AD, and on his list are all the exact same letters that you have in your New Testament. All the exact same books. He quotes in different moments that he's writing in his letters and things. He quotes as scripture from all of the books that we now consider the New Testament. So we have a verification there. In 170 AD, there was a document created by New Testament church leaders called the Moratorium Fragment. And in the Moratorium Fragment, these were, was a long writing about the books of the New Testament, the support for the authors, and included some of the writings that we have today in the New Testament. And in the moratorium fragment, it, it supports all of the authors for the New Testament that we, we, that we have today, and no others, only those, and also includes all of a list of the New Testament that we have today that is our same list today. In 185, just 55 years after Arrhenius, Origen makes a list. And Origen lives on another continent. He doesn't know Arrhenius, doesn't know his list, doesn't know anything about the moratorium fragment. He makes his own list, and it's all of the books that we have in the New Testament. And it's the same as Arrhenius' list. It's the same list as a moratorium fragment. So, all of these lists are getting compiled by churches all over North Africa, the Middle East, into Asia Minor, into Spain, even as far as India. People are making lists all over the known world at that time. And here's what's interesting all of the lists are the same. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, the reason it's a big deal is there was no email, there's no texting, there was no phone. So Arrhenius wasn't calling Origen and going, hey, buddy, uh, what are you including in your list? Because we got to make sure that people in 2023 believe that our lists are the same so that we can, you know, get this thing to really work. So um, who are you putting on your list? That's not how it worked. Not a single person knew each other. They didn't know who, what list somebody else was making. And when, when we look at history, we see that all of their lists are the same. Now, why is that true? Because God is doing this, not man. God's putting this together. We aren't. Now, as you continue to move into the future, into the third and the fourth century, the writers of the, of the church and the leaders of the church began to say, hey, you know what? We need to kind of put a close on this like there is a close on the Old Testament and we have never added anything to the Old Testament or taken anything away, we, we need to do that now. We need to close the New Testament, say what is included and what is not, and that this is going to be the inspired word of God about Jesus Christ moving forward forever. So in the third and the fourth century, they began to have lots and lots and lots of church meetings now, how exciting are church meetings? You got it. Not really exciting all the time, unless you are putting together the next work of God that will be His inspiring word. So, for the gentlemen that began to meet, this became extremely important, and there were several meetings. Most notable are the councils of Constantinople. There was four or five of them, and. The first emperor uh, started them, and when um, Constantine turned the Roman Empire into a Christian nation, one of the first things he did in Constantinople was got some of the local bishops together and said, "Hey, we need to get rid of all the heresies in, in Constantinople." Which, by the way, one of the heresies in Constantinople was known as the Arian Nation. No kidding. If you know what I'm talking about, you're going, no way, yes. Bishop Arius uh, lived in Constantinople and the emperor said, we're kicking him out of town and we're no longer believing that he doesn't believe in Jesus. Um, and so they kicked, kicked him out of town and refuted that as a heresy. But Constantine also said, hey, we need, to, we need to close the New Testament, so I need you guys to work on this and work on it quickly. So they began to have meetings. The most notable next meeting was called the Council of Nicaea. If you've never read anything about the Council of Nicaea, you need to, because one of my favorite stories of church history happens at the Council of Nicaea. It also deals with Bishop Arius, who is saying that Jesus was not the Messiah and not the Son of God, and another bishop gets out of his seat Walks over to Arius and punches him in the mouth. I love that story. Like, this guy loves Jesus so much and he loves God's word so much. He literally gets up in front of everybody and punches Arius in the mouth. It's so awesome. What a great story. Do you want to know who that bishop's name was? Nicholas. Santa Claus punched him in the mouth. So if you wonder at any point while you're celebrating Christmas, if Santa Claus is fed up with how we're celebrating, the answer is yes. In fact, if, if Bishop Nicholas was alive today, there'd be a lot of people getting punched in the mouth <laughs> when, they, when he would see how they celebrate his life and we put other things above Jesus. These are the men, like St. Nicholas, that were preserving the word of God for us. Men that were willing to punch other people in the mouth to make sure that Jesus was exalted and praised and authenticated. This is a big deal. But eventually we get to the Council of Hippo and the Synod of Carthage. The Council of Hippo in 393 and the, Council, the Synod of Carthage in 397 where we're officially, the church at that time, officially says, okay, we've closed the canon. And that was their word. It meant ruler. And what it meant was this, these are the things that are going to rule the church. These are the things that are going to rule our lives. And this is God's inspired word. And so they closed it during that time. And so during those meetings, we kind of closed it. And for for all of time, since 397 to now, This Bible has never changed from that time to now. And so um, that's how the Bible was built through the inspiration of God, the work of passionate transcribers and the leaders of New Testament churches. Now let me kind of close with, with a couple things to just leave us with as we head out the door for a minute. Understanding how the Bible was built is very, very helpful for us. It helps connect our belief and our trust, our mind and our heart all together with good facts. And that's important. But there's something that I believe about God's word that I think is very important. And that is that God's word is very important because humanity needs a constant. Humanity needs a constant. And what do I mean by that? I mean this. The definition of constant is something that is not changing. It's not changing, ever. It doesn't vary. It's always true. That's what a constant is. For instance, in math, we have certain things that are constants and certain things that are maybe a little bit not so constant, but it's the constants that build all of the foundation and the basis of all of mathematics. The constants are like our variables. 2 plus 2 is always 4. 10 plus 10 is always 20. 50 minus 25 is always 25. If those things changed, math would get very confusing, It'd be very hard. So there are certain things that have to stay constant. In fact, our computers and our phones and all of our technology right now are built on a constant variable. Zeros and ones all put together in a certain code, in a certain way, in a certain form, in a certain order. And if they weren't constant, then your computer would always be the blue screen of death. And your phone would not work. Or you would say, call Rick, and it would call Barbara. And you'd be like, what the heck? I was calling Rick. That would happen all the time. But because math is constant, and, and your phone and our computer and our world now is built on that constant, everything works like it should. Now, there are obviously some variables according to that, but um, most of the time that's true. Another one is like, how fast is an object moving? Well, we rate an object's movement based on a constant? Zero, most of the time, except if you're talking to Einstein, right? Einstein believed the constant was the speed of light, But most of the time we say the constant is what? Zero. And so when you're traveling 20 miles an hour, you're going 20 miles an hour faster than zero. Sea level is a constant. We gauge our mountains and our valleys, our altitude by the constant. And the constant is sea level. I would commend to you this morning that we are also in need of a constant truth. That right now, in our day, in 2023, one of the things that we are challenged with right now is that we need a constant truth. What we see happening around us is that when there is no constant truth, people become so confused about who they are that they embrace everything and anything. And as they grasp for any hope of personal assurance and value what they're really struggling for, is the truth. What's really the truth? And here's what I believe, and I hope you do too, that God loves us, and so he gave us a constant truth. He gave us something that we could always go to and say, that's the truth, and that's what I need to help my life. Now, that's our dilemma today. You and I live in a society that feels like truth can be changed. In fact, we live in a country where we are going to experience this moving into our future, and we're going to see the struggle with this, because right now, battle happening in our world is whether or not we should change like all of our laws, all of our old documents, all of our old Everything. Right now now the challenge with that, while you and I live in a great country and we have great documents like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, they're still written by men. Now the great part about the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence is it's very close to the Bible, so it works well because it's very close to God's truth. It's not just made-up man stuff. But we've been writing and adding laws to those things for hundreds of years now, and we live in a culture with hundreds of laws built on top of each other, but nobody follows them because they're not in our hearts. They're not in our minds. They're not in our lives. And so what we're proving is that man's law cannot be the constant. The moment that we try to say are what we think, what our ideas are the constant, our ideas will change. I mean, look at how much the United States has changed in 50 years. What used to be the constant 50 years ago is not the constant today. It's light years different. It's because we're making up the rules. And as we're making up the rules, we are becoming extremely confused. Now, what did Jesus say about that? Let me show you two things. In Matthew 24, verse 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus said, His words. God's words will always be the constant. The second thing that Jesus said that I think is really important is during his temptation. In Matthew chapter four, verse one, Jesus is being tempted and it says this, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, one of the things I love about God's word is sometimes it's overtly obvious. Have you ever noticed that? Like, dude was hungry after he hadn't eaten for 40 days. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Jesus said something extremely important here, and I want us to hear it. And that is that, there is something even more important than food. And that's what your spirit needs. See, Jesus is at this moment, I'm guessing, I've never done this, I've never fasted for 40 days. My longest is about 15, and I thought I was gonna starve to death. I literally thought I was gonna die. Here's Jesus, no, no food for 40 days. I think he's probably hungry. You would think everything in his body is screaming, I need food. That's what his body is telling him. I need food. And Jesus says what? There's still something else more important than food. There's still something in my life that is more important than food. And that's what my spirit needs. Because my spirit is more important than my physical body. And my spirit needs God's word because my spirit is kept alive as I read this book, as I study this book, as I apply this book to my life, and as I live it out in front of my neighbors and the world around me. See, Jesus says this. Jesus says this book is the most important thing on our planet. That's a powerful statement. It's a very powerful statement. All of us this afternoon are looking forward to Super Bowl food, right? And Jesus would say, ah, nah, this is where it's at. Eat eat you some of this. So here's, here's what I want us to leave with this morning. I think what you and I are seeing around us every single day as we leave this room and head out these doors and we live with the people around us. What we're seeing right now in the American culture is a culture that is starving for the truth, starving. And they're grasping at everything, everything to feed that starving, to feed that hole in their heart, that hole in their thinking, that hole in their attitude and in their identity. And we are literally saying the yard is wide open. Just try to fill it with anything you want because there's no more truth. There's no more absolute. But God would say, no, I know exactly what you need to fill your heart. I know exactly what you need for your life. And I've preserved it for 3,500 years, and it will be preserved all the way in in and through eternity so that you will always know what the truth is. And so here's my message to us this morning live in the constant truth of God's word, because it will never pass away. It's our spiritual food, our foundation. It needs to be our daily habit to read it, to apply it, and to live it. God's word must be our constant. Would you stand with me? And let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for today, for an opportunity to sing your praises, to celebrate your death and resurrection, to be encouraged with brothers and sisters in Christ that we live with and know, and to study your word, the very word of God, inspired and transcribed for us, that we could read it and study it, live it, and apply it. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us in this room, every single one of us, to become extremely hungry for your word. That your word would become our passion. Your word would become what we desire when we wake up in the morning, when we go to sleep at night. Your word would be what we desire in a very difficult time. Your word would be what we are looking to for answers for every one of life's issues and questions and situations. Lord, would you help us discover what Jesus told us? And that is that the life of someone that is in relationship with God Almighty, that life is fed by your word, even more than physical food. We need spiritual food. Would you help each and every one of us to have a passion for your word like that, that it would come alive inside of us and that we would want to obey it and put it into practice. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the individuals in the past that died to preserve your word the individuals that worked extremely hard to preserve your word, and for those that made massive commitments with their life to allow allow us to easily have two or three at our home or to write an app that makes it available on our phone wherever we are. Thank you, Jesus, for those sacrifices. We pray that you would bless those individuals and that Jesus, you would help us to be in love with your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. Hey, if you'd like to pray with somebody this morning, we're going to have a prayer partner up here this morning. So don't go if you want to just pray about something this morning. Uh, So don't run off if that's you. Always remember, Jesus loves you very much. So do Kate and I. Have a great week.